All right, we're going to step into the book of Lamentations. I don't know why I have a smirk on my face right now, but I'm just kind of excited about this. I don't think we've, uh, as Christians, know this book that well. I think we know a few verses in it well, but I've asked uh, Colleen to come up here and, and, and help read the text this morning. I've actually uh, chosen the message just because this is such a literary work and I feel like the message captures the, the, the liter- literary quality of the Hebrew really well. And uh, so please stand for the hearing of God's word. Oh, oh, oh. How empty the city once teeming with people. A witty widow, this city once in the front rank of nations. Once queen of the ball, she's now become nothing. She cries herself to sleep each night, tears soaking her pillow. No one's left among her lovers to sit and hold her hand. Her friends have all dumped her. After years of pain and hard labor, Judah has gone into exile. She camps out among the nations, never feels at home. Hunted by all, she's struck between a rock and a hard place. Zion's roads weep, empty of pilgrims headed to the feast. All her city gates are deserted. Her priests are in despair. Her virgins are sad. How bitter her fate. Her enemies have become her masters. Her foes are living it up because God laid her low punishing her repeated rebellions, her children, prisoners of the enemy, trudge into exile. Jerusalem remembers the day she lost everything, when her people fell into enemy hands, and not a soul there to help. Enemies looked on and mocked. They mocked at her helpless silence. Jerusalem, who outsinned the whole world, is now an outcast. And all who admired her despise her now, that, that they see beneath the surface, miserable she groans and turns away in shame. She played fast and loose with life. She never considered tomorrow. And now she's crashed royally with no one to hold her hand. Look at my pain, O oh God, and how the enemy cruelly struts. The enemy reached out to take all her favorite things. She watched as pagans barged into her sanctuary. Those very people for whom you posted orders, keep out, Gentile. All the people groaned, so desperate for food, so desperate to stay alive, that they bartered their favorite things for a bit of breakfast. Oh God, look at me, worthless, cheap, abject. And you passers-by, look at me. Have you ever seen anything like this? Ever seen pain like my pain? Seeing what he did to me, what God did to me in his rage, he struck me with lightning, skewered me from head to foot. Then he set traps all around me so I could barely move. He left me with nothing, left me sick and sick of living. For all this I weep. I weep buckets of tears, and not a soul within miles around cares for my soul. My children are wasted. My enemy has gotten his way. Zion reached out for help, but no one helped. God ordered Jacob's enemies to surround him 
And now no one wants anything to do with Jerusalem. God has right on his side. I'm the one who did wrong. Listen, everybody, look at what I'm going through. My fair young women, my fine young men are all herded into exile. Oh, God, look at the trouble I'm in. My stomach is in knots. My heart is wrecked by a life of rebellion. Massacres in the streets and starvation in the houses. And God walked away from his holy house. Oh, 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 how the Almighty has cut down daughter Zion from the skies, dashed Israel's glorious city to earth, and in his anger treated his favorite as throwaway junk. This is God's word for this morning. You can be seated. Thank you, Colleen. Here's another raw, authentic expression of pain in the Bible. The next two weeks, we're going to be looking at this book. This week, we're going to try to um, uncover the book itself, give you just enough so you can read and understand it uh, later this week. And then uh, next week, I'm going to look at the book in light of the whole of Scripture. Um, so that's where we're going the next two weeks. I, I, I want to start with the title, <laughs> Lamentations. I'll just say right now, I'm not a big fan of this title. Um, I, I don't have to be, because uh, this, this title isn't inspired by God. Most of the titles in the Bible were, were, were uh, produced hundreds of years after the scriptures were, were written. Um, I don't know why Christians felt the need to, to change the titles that were originally in Hebrew to their Christian version. Uh, I think, again, it's our attempt to just uh, Greekize the Bible. Um, in fact, I mean, you just take the first book of the Bible, Genesis. I just can't help but wonder why the Hebrew title, The Beginnings, wasn't good enough. Or Numbers. Like, who's compelled to read a book called Numbers? In Hebrew, it's called The Desert. Uh, Deuteronomy. What does that mean? In Hebrew, the book of the words. Even Psalms, I think we have some idea what a psalm is just because we read the Psalms, but in Hebrew it means songs of praise. Ecclesiastes, what's that? In Hebrew it means the preacher. And you, after we've learned that, you, you're like, preach it, preacher, right? Um, Lamentations, I guess you could, you could say, yeah, I see lament in the title, but then I ask, what's a lament? Well, here's what a lament is. A lament is an intense expression of grief. It's weeping, it's crying, it's groaning. That's what laments are. Laments complain, they shout, they protest. They take things like anger and despair and they take these things before God in the community. So in light of that, I, I say, why not just call this book Weeping? Or call it Tears? Because that's what this book is. This is a verbal expression of one in pain. The Hebrew title for this book, like all Hebrew titles, they take just the first word of the book. And that becomes the title. And so the title is 
the Hebrew word aikah. And I don't think we have a really good English form of this word. The old English word alas is probably the, the best word. Alas means to be grief-stricken or in agony. We translate this word, look at it, uh, verse, the first word of chapter 1. It's, it's translated how. And I don't mind that. Especially if we understand that this is a certain kind of how. The, the how that's uttered by the one who's shell-shocked in pain. The, the, the person who's just saying, how? How did this happen? How is this happening? How is this happening to me? How long? It's that how. In fact, I don't know if you know who the first person in the Bible to utter this how is. It's God. And God utters this word in Genesis 3, verse 9. We translate it uh, as where, where, where God says, where are you? It's after Adam and Eve have sinned. How? How did this happen? God is grief-stricken at that moment. So that's what this book is. This book is, is, is one of the most intense expressions of pain and sadness in the Bible. I think it's even more intense than Job, simply because it's not just one person in pain, but it's the whole community. In fact, if you want to know the story behind this lament, the, the, the story that catalyzes this lament, we need to go to 2 Chronicles 36. And you can turn there, or you can just listen Chronicles in the Hebrew Bible is, is the last book of their text. And this is the last chapter of their Bible, which is the end of their story. And it's quite sad. It's devastating. Describes the fall of Jerusalem. Listen to verse 17 of chapter 36 of 2 Chronicles. God brought up against them the king of the Babylonians who killed their young men with the sword in the sanctuary, who did not spare young men or young women, the elderly or the sick. Think about that. He carried to Babylon all the articles from the temple of God, both large and small, and the treasures of the Lord's temple, and the treasures of the king and his officials. And they set fire to God's temple and broke down the wall of Jerusalem. They burned all the palaces, destroyed everything of value there. That's the context in which Lamentations is written. How? How is this happening? How is this happening to us? Because for them, life as they knew it was completely shattered. I mean, just think about this. Loved ones, both young and old, are are left slaughtered and dead. Many of them, in fact, died of starvation. The land is laid to waste. Jerusalem, the center of Jewish life, is pillaged and burned. And anyone who survived that now just gets exiled hundreds of miles away to a strange land. Let's be honest this morning. As Americans, we don't. We can't even imagine this. I love this new term that, or phrase that's come out because I think it expresses things very, world, very well. We talk about third world problems. Well, now we're starting to talk about first world problems. 
Right? You, you hear the phrase? I mean, most of us today deal with first world problems. This is significant. I mean, can you even begin to imagine a foreign invader coming and completely wrecking and pillaging our country, laying waste to Grand Rapids, leaving thousands upon thousands dead in the street, and then all those that survive that, that are just shipped to a foreign land. Now listen, as bad as this would be, This isn't even the most devastating reality for God, God's people at this time. Because God's people are, through this destruction, confronted with the unthinkable. And the unthinkable for them is that God's house, that's where God lives. That's his house up there, destroyed. Because for them, that house, it's, it's the centerpiece. It's, it's, it's the centerpiece of everything they believed about God, everything they've come to believe about themselves. It, 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 it defines who they are and their purpose in this world. Because when God said, build me that house, he said, when you build it, I'm going to live there. But he also said this, not only will I live there, you build it. I'll walk among you. I'll be in you. I'll fill you. And so the wreckage of that building was more the wreckage of even a church building or a cathedral. It was the wreckage of of their whole understanding of who they were in light of God. And Their whole identity at that moment was wrecked because God in their minds was no longer with them and among them. It would be the equivalent right now if God just took away the Holy Spirit from us. And I hope we're the kind of church that knows that if God took his Holy Spirit from us right now, what a big deal that would be. In the time when we most needed him, that his presence was gone. This is the context then of lamentations, and this is why it's this how. How is this happening to us? By the way, um, the ninth day of the Jewish month of Av, the ninth of Av, Jewish people every year mourn this reality. And in fact, I, you, could, you can Google that just even the ninth of Av or Tishba Av is how it's said in Hebrew. You wouldn't believe all the tragedies that have befallen the Jewish people on this day. Uh, the biggies, of course, are the tragedy that we just read, the destruction of the first tempo, temple and then the exile. It's also the day in which the Romans destroyed the second temple, which is 500 years later after the event of this, or 40 years after Jesus. And, and even just in those two things, we're still scratching the surface. So Jews have set aside the ninth of Av every year when they fast and they reflect on this tragic loss. And so Jews from all over the world, they're going to gather in synagogues on this day. And they're going to pray their pain. And the way they pray their pain is they're going to pray the book. 
in the book they're going to pray tomorrow, because tomorrow, August 4, is the 9th of Av on the Jewish calendar. Jews from all over the world are going to gather in synagogues and pray Lamentations. Listen, this isn't just their book. This is our book. And my question when I read this is, do we know how to lament? That's why God put this book here. This book is here to teach us on how to lament. What I can't do today is I can't go verse by verse explaining the whole thing, but I want to give you enough hooks in a little bit of time we have this morning so that you can take this book this week and read it and understand it for yourself. That's my goal. Now, the reason why I had uh, Colleen up here is, first of all, I want you to know how this book works. Because the book wants to be heard through an interplay of two speakers. The first speaker is the narrator. And the narrator, in a, in a really rather stoic way, is describing the horrors that have befallen Jerusalem. The second speaker, Lamentations, calls this person Daughter Zion. It's all throughout the book. Daughter Zion, Daughter Zion. Daughter Zion is Jerusalem personified. And as you heard, she's far from stoic. I love this about the Bible. Because the Bible is more than just a set of propositions for us to know. The Bible oftentimes gives us reality through pictures. Because propositions speak to a person's mind. But the pictures, when you can see them, speak and move a heart. And so look at how Limitations paints this picture of Jerusalem. Look at verses 1 and 2. How deserted lies the city, once so full of people. How like a widow is she, who was once great among the nations. She was queen among the provinces. She has now become a slave. Bitterly she weeps at night. Tears are on her cheeks. And among all her lovers, there is no one, no one to comfort her. All her friends have betrayed her. It's more intense. Look at verse 8. Jerusalem has sinned greatly. And so doing has become unclean. All who honored her now despise her, for they have all seen her naked. She herself groans and turns away. Her filthiness clung onto her skirts. She did not consider her future. Her fall was astounding. There was none to comfort her. So how is she depicted? Well, not only is Jerusalem depicted as a she, but also as a mother. And not only as a mother, but also as a widow. And not just any widow, but a widow who is a rape victim. I don't know if you've seen uh, Hollywood's latest version of of Les Miserables. When I watched that, I'll tell you, Anne Hathaway's performance as she played the widow Fontaine. I don't think I've ever seen anything that raw. I mean, it was, it was unnerving to watch. When she sings that song, I, I dreamed a dream in time gone by, I mean, you'd have to be a stone not to be moved by it. 
Because through that song, she, she just draws you right into her soul, into her agony, into her loss, into her exploitation. The agony of this death, she's dying as she's losing the battle to feed her daughter through prostitution. That's exactly what Lamentations is doing. It's through daughter Zion, we're, we're, we're drawn into Jerusalem's pain through her, this widow who's in agony. And then through these first-person laments over and over again, daughter Zion, like Fontaine, is going to interrupt the narrator with her anguish and her cries and her screams. Look at verse 9. The narrator says her filthiness clung to her skirt. She did not consider her future. Her fall was astounding. There was none to comfort her. And then daughter Zion just cries out, Look, O Lord, at my pain, how my... How my enemy cruelly struts. Look down to verse 11. The narrator is saying, All the people groan, seeking bread. They've given their precious things for food to restore their lives. And daughter Zion rubs this with, Oh Lord, look at me. Worthless, cheap, counted as nothing. And to all you who pass by, you look at me. Have you seen anything like this? You ever see pain like my pain? what God did to me. And so you have this interplay between the narrator and daughter Zion that goes on like this in chapter 1, in chapter 2, in chapter 4. And why did I skip chapter 3? Because in chapter 3 there's a a surprise, which I'll save for last. But then in chapter 5, it's no longer the narrator speaking or daughter Zion speaking, but it's the whole community together speaking their lament as one voice. There's so much here. But before I get to it, i got one more thing to show you. Anybody know how many letters there are in the Hebrew alphabet? Oh my goodness, who did that? Please, stand up, take a bow. Because honestly, I asked that question at first service. Of course no one had 22. But then I said, how about English? Anybody know how many letters there are in our alphabet? Okay, good. Like, they didn't even answer that question. Guess I know where all the smart people go. What service? Okay, anyway, 22 letters. Chapter 1, how many verses? Chapter 2, how many verses? Chapter 3, how many verses? Ha, 66 is what? Divided by 3? Chapter 4, how many verses? 25, how many verses? Okay, this thing is is a work of art. It's written acrostically, which means this. If it were written in English, uh, verse 1, the first letter of the first word would be what letter? A. The first letter of the first word of verse 2 would be the letter B. The first word, first letter of the first word of chapter, verse 22 would be? Z. And that's how it works in chapter 1. That's how it works in chapter 2, 4, 5. Chapter 3, there are 66 verses. First three verses, first letter of the first word, the first three verses, A. Then the next three verses, first word of B. And you're like, okay, so what? What's the big deal about this? Better ask that question. Let me begin with... 
the acrostics. Especially if we knew Hebrew, we could see what a potent work of art this is. There is a beauty to suffering that is done well. And some of you in this church have shown me that. I've, I've, I've looked at your suffering, and as ugly as it is, because of how you suffer, there is a beauty that just emanates that I, I know you don't even know because you, you, you feel the ugliness of it. But it's just, it's incredible. Second, there is an A to Z to suffering. There is a beginning and an end. And this A to Z is important for us to know. Because first of all, we can't shortchange the process. We can't cut it off. We can't be like entering our, our suffering A and now B and now C and now D. And I'm like, mm, I'm done. Done. No. We got to go all the way through it. A to Z. And you never know that it's Z. Until you get to Z. And see, as we do the A to Z of suffering, as we do each step, we, 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 we also need to know how to lament. We need to know how to lament A, and we need to know how to lament B, and we need to know how to lament C. But see, this isn't something that Christians do well because what we want is we want shortcuts to our grief. But again, I, I mean, as I'm preparing this this week, I am just praising God for so many of the people in our church. And I don't even have to name their names. But I'm looking at one right now who have shown us how to suffer A, B, C, all the way to C. Thank you, Josh and Shelley. And so many other people in this church. What this also teaches is that suffering has a beginning and an end. In other words, suffering is not the whole of life. Suffering is, is not even the whole of this world. In fact, if we go step by step through our pain, A to Z, there is a beginning to our suffering, but there is also a Z to our suffering, an end to our suffering. As Psalm 30 verse 5 says, weeping may tarry for the night, but joy comes in the morning. Which also means that when we get to the Z, we cannot just hang on to suffering like a pacifier. Where it becomes so much a part of our identity. We're like a little infant. We're clinging to it like they do their binky. Sorry, that probably wasn't the best analogy, but it might be. See, this is why we need lamentations. This is why we need to see daughter Zion. In lamentations, we, we need to look at her. We need to see her. We need to see how she does pain, how she expresses it, how she identifies it, how she enters it, how she lays it bare for everyone to see. How do you do pain? How do you express pain? 
how do we do pain? How does Crossroads express pain? See, it's my conclusion that we don't know how to do pain. Because in many ways, we're just the opposite of daughter Zion. We stuff our pain. We medicate our pain. We hide our pain. And for this reason, we don't do lament. Because we don't do pain and suffering. Or at least we don't do it out loud. Because what we have been taught ever since we were young, that suffering and pain are bad realities, and that there are signs that something's wrong with us. What I want you to know right now is that this is a Western phenomena. Do you know that most of, of the world accepts pain and suffering as just a normal part of life, and therefore lament is also a normal part of life? But here we are in the West, and, and, and in the West we're, we're products of the Enlightenment, and one of the main premises of the enlightenment is that all suffering is bad, that suffering and pain are deficiencies, they're problems that need to be eliminated, they're diseases or sicknesses that need to be remedied, and so the whole goal of the enlightenment is to scientifically make life comfortable, make life easy, and pain-free. That's why in the West we have therapy. The rest of the world doesn't do therapy. Because therapy is essentially a scientific attempt to diagnose pain and remedy it. And see, then in the West, if the therapy doesn't work to fix the pain or eliminate it, then we just start taking the pills. And the reason for this is because whatever that pain or that suffering or, or, or hurt is... We know it's bad. We know it needs to be fixed. And that these deficiencies need to be eliminated at all costs. Now, please, please, I don't want my email box flooded this week with things like, why are you against therapy and why are you against taking medication? I'm not against those things. What I'm attacking is the premise underneath them. This enlightenment idea that all pain and all suffering are bad and that it's a sickness that needs to somehow be remedied and eliminated. That's what I'm against. Because I flat out reject the enlightenment idea that pain in my life means something's wrong with me. Or if you have pain. It's wrong for us to just assume that there's something wrong with you. I know this experience alone. In fact, I know that, that comfort and pleasure, the goals of the Enlightenment, when I get too much of these things, they produce some of the worst stains in my life and character that I have. But that pain and suffering... Although I haven't had tons of it in my life, I've had enough of it to know that pain and suffering have produced some of the best things in my life and in my character. And one of the healthiest things I can do when I'm in my pain is to hurt out loud. And more than just personal experience, what we need to see is that the Bible doesn't see suffering this way. I mean, just think about it. All the best realities, like atonement, 
redemption, salvation, reconciliation, resurrection. These things don't happen in spite of suffering. They happen through suffering. Healing, according to the Bible, happens through suffering. In fact, suffering is the means by which the most healing and restorative forces of God come to life in me, in you, and in our world. It's through suffering. Jesus' whole mission was said, he said, I came to suffer. Paul says to this Corinthian megachurch, prosperity gospel, wanting Paul to prove that he's a super apostle, Paul's like resisting the temptation to, to, to enter into that dialogue, but can't resist. Finally, at the end of the second letter, says, all right, I give in. You want me to boast? I will boast. I will boast about my weakness and my sufferings. Because in my sufferings, that's where I find God. And that's where I experience his power. Which is why Paul also says in Philippians 3, he says, I want to know Christ. I want to know the power of his resurrection. And so many of us stop there, but Paul's just getting started. Now I don't want to know Christ, the power of his resurrection. But I want koinonia. I want this intimate sharing in Christ's sufferings. See, this is why the book of Limitations is so important. It's why the Psalms are so important. We as Christians need to learn how to do pain and suffering. We need to learn how to lament. And what I love about this whole book is that this whole book is, is, is flowing to chapter 5 where, where the lament moves from the narrator and daughter Zion and now it's the whole community in one voice shouting her lament to God. I know you want to read it right now, too. Look at it. Look at Lamentations 5. Synagogues tomorrow are going to be full. People shouting this to God, praying it. Remember, Lord, what has happened to us. Look and see our disgrace. Our inheritance has been turned over to strangers, our homes to foreigners. We have become fatherless. Our mothers are widows. We must even buy the water we drink. Our wood can only be had at a price. Those who pursue us are at our heels. We are weary. We find no rest. Going all the way down to nine, we get our bread at the risk of our lives because of the sword in the desert. Our skin is hot as an oven, feverish from hunger. Women have been violated in Zion, virgins in the towns of Judah. Princes have been hung up by their hands. Elders have been shown no respect. Young men toil at the millstones. Boys stagger under loads of wood. The elders are gone from the city gate, and young men have stopped their music. And joy has gone from our hearts. I know when I read something like that today in a room this size, some of you are there. That those words, those words just gave expression to your pain. And not only do we have brothers and sisters in our room right now who, who when they read this, 
they're, they're saying, that's my pain. That's giving expression to my pain. Think about our brothers and sisters all over the city and all over this nation and all over the globe who right now, when they hear those words, they're like, that's me. That's where I am. I know what some of you are thinking. Some of you are thinking, oh no, here we go again. Another, another sermon on pain. You're thinking, Pastor, my life is fine. I'm not in pain. I don't really know pain. I'll say to you, yep, that's right. You might not know pain now. But you will. I can't teach suffering when suffering happens. Because... You're not ready to hear about it. That's why I need to teach you right now so that when it does happen, you're prepared. And when you're prepared, you're not saying to yourself, why is this strange thing happening to me? Because you know, you're prepared. I'm telling you, if any of us are ever surprised by suffering, that's on me. That's my fault. That means I haven't done my job. Jesus said, in this world, you will have trouble. And let me push this further. The moment you gave your life to Jesus Christ, at that moment, your life was no longer your own. But at that moment, you belonged to a family, a Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And even broader than that, you belonged to the family of God. And as family, when you hurt... I hurt, we hurt. When I hurt, you hurt. Your pain is my pain, and my pain is your pain. That's what it means to be family. You don't have the right, you don't have the luxury to say, I don't want to deal with other people's pain. Paul says we rejoice with those who rejoice. We weep with those who weep because we're a family. And there's hurt in this room that every one of us ought to care about and know about. We have brothers and sisters right now in places like Africa, in places in the Middle East, and North Korea, and Israel and Palestine who are in pain. And they can pray this prayer. And their, their pain needs to be our pain. There's a weird thing that happens when, 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 when you experience pain, whether great or small. Um, for some reason, it just, it, it, it's a great comfort to know that someone else just knows, that they, they know now, they, they know experientially. Uh, when Libby was pregnant, <laughs> yeah, I'd be a rich man if I could count every time she said to me, Rod, I just wish you could be pregnant. <laughs> And I said, yes, Livy, so do I. <laughs> she just wanted me to know. I mean, even the last couple of weeks, weeks ago, I was, I was just tired. I was exhausted. You know, I just did the Israel thing and um, 
with that was, was, was melancholy and just all this stuff that was going on. And I, I, I thought that a lot. I just, I, I thought, I just wish right now this person could know how I feel. I wish this person could really, really, really know how I feel. Listen, our, as a church, our calling is not to do therapy to diagnose pain so we can eliminate it. Our job is simply to enter it, to walk together through the A to Z of pain, to tarry with each other in the night so that joy can come in the morning. So who are you tearing with right now? Who's tearing with you? The Bible over and over again teaches we're a body. And, and, and when a part of the body hurts, the whole body just responds to that hurt. We weep with those who weep. I want to be that church. Finally, chapter 3, the heart of this book. Let's turn there. I mean, this is, this, is, we're, we're, this is where we're now doing a peak climb. Chapter 3, we are scaling the mountain peaks of the book of Lamentations. And to get to any peak, you first have to scale the mountains. So chapters 1 and 2 and 3 or 4 would be the mountain. Chapter 3 is, is the book's mountain peak. Chapter 3 actually introduces us to a new voice. This is not the voice of the narrator. It's not the voice of daughter Zion. It's not the voice of the community. Look at verse 1. This is the voice of a man. However, it's not just any man because it's not the generic Hebrew word for man that's used. The word is is ish. This is a specific Hebrew word. It's geber. Geber means strong man or mighty man. It's a champion. In fact, the verbal form of, of, of this word means to prevail or to overcome. In fact, I found out this week that I named my son Gibber. Gibberel, Gabriel, means a strong man or mighty man of God. And so in that culture, a Gibber is the exact opposite of a widow because a widow in that world was considered to be the most weak and vulnerable per- person. On the other hand, a Gabur is a mighty man, a strong man. In fact, this is what Boaz is called in the book of Ruth. He's called a Gabur. In fact, the story of Ruth is about two widows, Naomi and Ruth. And it's a story of how a strong man, Boaz, brings redemption to their lives. And think about that. That's the story of the whole Bible. It's the story of a strong man, of a champion who brings redemption to the widow, to the rape victim, to daughter Zion. But look at what it says in this chapter, chapter 3, about this mighty man. I am the man who has seen affliction by the rod of the Lord's wrath. He has driven me away and made me walk in darkness rather than light. Indeed, he has turned his hand against me. Again and again, all day long. He has made my skin and my flesh grow old and has broken my bones. He has besieged me and surrounded me with bitterness and hardships. He has made me dwell in darkness like those long dead. He's walled me in so I cannot escape. He's weighed me down with chains. Even when I call out or cry for help, he shuts out my prayer. 
He's barred my way with blocks of stones. He's made path, my paths crooked. Like a bear waiting in wait, like a lion in hiding, he dragged me from the path and mangled me and left me without help. He drew his bow. He made the target for his arrows. He pierced my heart with the arrows from his quiver. I became the laughingstock of all my people. They mocked me in song all day long. He has filled me with bitter herbs. He has given me gall to drink. He has broken my teeth with gravel. He has trampled me in the dust. For I have been deprived of peace. I have forgotten what prosperity is. I say my splendor is gone. And that is what I hoped from the Lord. This is what we expect daughter Zion to say. Not our mighty champion. Who is this? Why is this here? Right in the heart of this book. And see, I know that those who have been coming here long enough, because you're, you're, you're learning how to read your Bibles, you know this is messianic because you know the whole Bible in many ways is about this strong man, this mighty man, this champion who's going to come to the world and see everything that's gone wrong and make it right. And right here we see how he's going to do it. He's going to experience every hurt, every injustice, every kind of rejection, every kind of human agony. Which means he doesn't just from on high see our hurt. He understands it. He knows it. Every tear, every rejection, every hurtful word, every blow, every gross injustice. And listen to what he says at the conclusion of his suffering. Look at verses 22 through 25. Because of the Lord's great love, we are not consumed. For his compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. And so I say to myself, the Lord is my portion, therefore I wait for him. The Lord is good to those who hope in him, to the one who seeks him. Do you know this about God? Can your heart sing this? I remember calling Doug Tagus the day after his son Derek and his grandson Dylan passed away. And I said, Doug, how are you doing today? And this is what he quoted. He said, Rod, his mercies are new every morning. Great is his faithfulness. See, because this is what we have in Christ. We have a God who doesn't just diagnose suffering, but he actually enters it. He's a God who can say what's said in this chapter, I have seen affliction. I've been made to dwell in the dark places. I've become a laughing stock. My strength is no more. But what was the last thing he said in his suffering? It is finished. He walked at A, B, C, D, the A to Z of suffering. And that pronouncement, it 
is finished is not just a pronouncement about his own suffering, but it's a pronouncement about all suffering, that all suffering one day is going to come to an end, that his suffering is going to put a finality to all suffering. He's going to make it all right. Do you know this today? That through the suffering of Christ, our world is going to be healed of all suffering. That there is a day when we will all say about our suffering, if we are in Christ, it is finished. And see, this is why the Christian who has this hope, more than any other person in the world, can actually enter suffering whether it's our own suffering or the suffering of others or the suffering in our world, why we can actually cry more, why we can lament deeper, why we can be more honest and authentic in chaos, why we can feel it more, why we can live in it, acknowledge it, empathize it, express it. We have this hope That in this world we will have trouble, but Jesus says, but take heart, I have overcome the world. And that means right now that that day is coming when suffering will be no more. But right now it means that in the midst of our suffering, his presence is with us. He's among us. To the point, I don't care what our circumstances, when we know the presence of God, we can say, his mercies are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness, O Lord. Let's pray.